Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and we are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in WWE, not only across SmackDown and Raw, but something that transpired at the end of one of those YouTube celebrity boxing events. Uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about that on today's show as well. The build for WWE Crown Jewel and WWE Survivor Series fully off and running with an extremely newsworthy week in the world of WWE. Off the top of today's show, I would be remiss if I did not remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, for vintage Chris Vanini. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a full five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights. It is also a great place for you to send in questions for the show, be it via tweet, DM, whatever the case might be. Again, all of that on Twitter at Getting Overcast. I should also note, you can email us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just five dollars a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get weekly news posts that hit. You will also get bonus audio around the four major weekly shows. We're talking Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown. And you get to support financially the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I do want to shout out Dylan K and Samuel M, who are our newest official getting overheads. I appreciate both of you supporting the show. And off the top here, allow me to acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. And with that, we can get into today's show, Chris. I'll tell you, you know, SmackDown on Friday, I just thought it was tremendous from start to finish. Basically, No notes, really. For a season premiere episode, it kicked off and simultaneously continued a ton of storylines while setting up plenty of stuff, not just for Crown Jewel and, as I mentioned, Survivor Series, but maybe as far off as WrestleMania as well. Monday for Raw, it was not as strong comparatively. I mean, it's going to be tough when like Roman Reigns returns after a two-month absence on one show for the other show, which pretty much had the same cast of characters it always did, uh, to be as strong. And for me, that was a rare switch because on a week-to-week basis recently, especially without Reigns, I've preferred Raw to SmackDown. That was not the case this week. It also didn't help. And, And look, We're more critical of bad crowds than we are praiseworthy of good ones because the expectation is that crowds should be excited to be at a wrestling show. But this Oklahoma City crowd on Monday night was legitimately terrible. And then you add that Michael Cole was surprisingly absent, like his third or fourth missed show in two decades. You had Kevin Patrick fill in. You know exactly how that went. So his lack of energy for the home viewer 
combined with the crowd's lack of energy, it just hurt my perception of the show. I'm not here to tell you that I thought Raw Monday Night was bad. It was not. It was a compelling episode with a lot of really good content and really good creative. But SmackDown for me on Friday was one of the best episodes of wrestling television this entire year. Doesn't matter the brand, doesn't matter the company. I came out of that two hours Friday night, like energized and amped up to be watching WWE television. And many weeks, that is just not the case. Yeah, I mean, it starts with the star power there. I I missed SmackDown Live. I was on a flight to Seattle for Oregon, Washington, where I got a cold. So if I sound a little under the weather, that's what the issue is. But I land and my brother's texting me about LA Knight and Roman Reigns. And I'm like, oh my God, what happened? So I pull it up while I'm in I pull it up while I'm in the 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 Uber. I pull up YouTube TV, I scroll back and I watch the beginning of that. And just just like wrestling is about stars Mm -hmm. and star power. It always has been. That's the biggest issue with AEW right now is that it doesn't treat its stars like stars. And when WWE puts Roman Reigns and John Cena in the ring to start the episode and then put over LA Knight like a million bucks, people are just going to flock to that. They're giving you something that you've wanted for a while, thought may not happen, and we're just going right to it, man. We're putting Roman Reigns and LA Knight in the ring face-to-face like we're going right off the bat. SmackDown was electric from the beginning because of that. Raw, not as good. You mentioned the crowd. You mentioned Kevin Patrick. But also, it just it doesn't quite have the same star power mm-hmm. when compared to SmackDown because those are the three most over guys in WWE today. Right. Maybe Cody Rhodes is in there too. Uh, but th- that's just the difference overall. The season premiere thing is weird, but a, a really, really good SmackDown. And I thought a solid, if yet a bit repetitive, Raw. See, the season premiere thing It is weird to a degree because wrestling is 52 weeks a year. That's true. But we talked about this all the time, especially during the pandemic, when AEW was doing special editions of Dynamite one week after another. We're like, hey, it's too many in in such a short period of time. But the other side of the coin was WWE never doing special shows. There's never like thematic shows. Mm -hmm. Occasionally back in the day, they used to do old school Raw or they'll do an anniversary episode or obviously like the holiday episodes they throw some, you know, parties in there that are all kind of roll your eyes, you know, slapstick comedy type of thing. But they don't ever do like, I can't even give you an example, like Monday Night Raw, No Mercy, like a special edition of Raw or Night of Champions or, you know, whatever the case might be. And the season premiere episodes, along with the draft episodes, are the rare opportunities where it feels like something special is happening on these shows. They're putting their best foot forward. They're they're thematic to a degree. So I appreciate them when they come around. And like I said, WWE largely does put their best foot forward. And I do think that was the case here. Um, SmackDown was the best creative that WWE could fit into a two-hour show with that cast of characters. Raw, I thought was very close to it. There were a lot of elements that I mentioned and you've mentioned that dragged the show down. Really, the crowd was the biggest factor. But there were it was, it was a very storyline heavy episode, despite the fact that there were three high quality matches. But we got a lot of character development on Monday night, which I found immensely intriguing. So what we're going to do mm-hmm. is we're going to kick off this show with the main event, as we always do, then the good, the bad and the ugly and the last word. But I wanted to give everyone a little bit of a heads up. This is probably going to be the longest main event that we've ever done. 
for one primary reason. Almost everything that happened on SmackDown fed into what happened on Raw. And it's one big, long, you know, weaving storyline with a bunch of characters who all have relationships with one another in some way or another. There's maybe one exception to that, and we will get to that when we actually break all of this down. But because of the way that these shows transpired, we're going to do half a main event on SmackDown. We're going to do half a main event on Raw. But really, all of it mixes together. And that, to me, was a very unique uh, storytelling device, I guess, uh, that WWE used across five hours of television this week. So with that said, let's not waste any more time getting to it. We're going to kick off this show, as we always do, by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. And certainly the overarching topic for SmackDown was the return of the undisputed WWE Universal Champion, Roman Reigns. SmackDown, though, opened, Chris, with the greatest of all time, John Cena. Uh, He was in the ring. Roman Reigns quickly made his return seconds behind him. He was with Paul Heyman, who dyed his hair now that Roman is back, so it's fully black, uh, plus Solo Sokoa, but no one else by his side. The easiest way to tell that Reigns is back on SmackDown is when 10 minutes transpire at the beginning of the episode and nothing happens. And that's what happened again here. Reigns said the fans were chanting for a coward, Cena, who only showed up because he was on vacation and now somehow gets called the GOAT. Reigns gave Cena an ultimatum, but he acknowledged Roman's title reign as the greatest accomplishment of all time. Cena said he wouldn't challenge him for the title, but he knows someone who has earned that right and ability. Enter LA Knight. His music hits, huge pop. Cena hands him the mic kind of the way Heyman hands Reigns the mic. Knight stepped up to Roman. He got the crowd going. So Reigns said he gave him a couple months to get over, but he is no one compared to the tribal chief. There was a great camera shot of Roman's reflection in Ellie's glasses here. There was also a great line from Knight saying stepping to him would get Reigns referred to in the past tense, which is actually a line from John Cena's word life theme. And Cena reacted to it in the background. It was very funny. You know, he does all the shtick in the background. He was great on that. Uh, But a nice Easter egg. As Knight kept talking, Jimmy Uso attacked from behind. L.A. immediately threw him out. And Roman was somewhat confused by it, ducking out of the ring. Reigns then told Sokoa, forget about Cena, handle Knight. This was undoubtedly a hot opening 15 minutes. A top legend on the roster, the biggest active star, and the most over babyface, and you could say maybe it's Cody Rhodes, but 1A and 1B perhaps at this point, all in the ring together. Most importantly, in a huge spot, really, I would say the biggest moment of his career To this point, Chris, Knight completely delivered. He didn't show that nervousness or that apprehension that we've seen previously. He hit every note. He stood toe-to-toe with the top guy on the mic and came across like a legitimate main eventer. Congratulations to me. And it was another instance of Cena basically serving as a background character, marking out to get Knight over. Not only that, Reigns did a really good job playing off Knight and taking him seriously, even while wanting to dismiss him in kayfabe due to his position. I do wish the promo battle went a little bit longer, but they have like three weeks left for the crown jewel build. So there's plenty of time for them to go at each other on the mic. Other than that, 
no notes. This, as I said, was something I had to pull up as soon as possible um, on my phone. And there's so many little parts of this I, I want to touch on that you just went through. First off, Roman's entrance. Yes, it takes forever, but it always feels like a big deal. It is the best entrance to me in wrestling. And so I never mind that it goes long. Michael Cole mentions that uh, Paul Heyman's hair. Mm -hmm. He's uh, rejuvenated. It looks different. <laughs> he, he has dyed the hair. It's not as gray as it was. And Graves mentioned that he's Benjamin Butting, a great acknowledgement of a little thing that Paul Heyman had been doing in recent weeks, his hair graying the longer that Roman was out. LA Knight's music hits, and Paul Heyman's reaction is incredible. Mm -hmm. Like, he just cringes, scrunches his face. He's so annoyed. And Roman, who hasn't been here for weeks, is just like, hmm, what's this about? And like you said, he, he found the perfect balance of dismissing LA Knight a little bit, but also taking him seriously. Right. Which is really, really important to now you handle that. Uh, Cena not only handing the microphone to LA Knight, but saying basically into the microphone, it's your time. Yeah, he was deferential. Patting to him. him on the back. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like we got a question, I think, a week or two ago. Is John Cena being too hokey with this kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. And like to an extent, yes, but to the majority of the crowd, it's very meaningful the way he's going about it. Uh, which I, I still think it's it's working. Roman's reaction to the pop again, uh, just really surprised in character, at least kind of uh, how big of a pop he's getting. The shot, the camera shot of Roman in LA Knight's glasses when LA Knight's like, you're in my way. Incredible camera work. Mm -hmm. Really, really good stuff there. And look, bottom line, like this is everything fans have always wanted from pro wrestling. You want somebody who gets organically over and then WWE pushes him to the moon. This is it. Yep. He's getting Slim Jim commercials. He's getting the SummerSlam moment. He's him and Bianca Belair speaking to the advertisers at an event in New York City, I think, this week. Mm -hmm. Now he's face to face in the ring with Roman Reigns. Just a few months ago, this guy wasn't doing much of anything like it's wild to just be here at this point where Roman Reigns is in the ring with L.A. Knight. And it seems like we're probably going to get or maybe going to get Roman L.A. Knight at Crown Jewel. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, mean, I don't know who. Else. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, we're about to get an L.A. Knight World Heavyweight Championship match potentially. That is crazy. And I just want everybody to appreciate that, uh, that for all the years and years of criticizing the way WWE pushes people down your throat, doesn't listen to the fans, yada, yada, yada. Like this is the this is everything you could ever want. And it's just it's very, very fun. You did forget that WWE also gave him the opportunity to be interviewed by the esteemed Getting Over Wrestling podcast, which you're talking about Absolutely. talking to advertisers or main eventing a pay-per-view. I mean, what better, you know, what better spot is there than the special guest on the 500th episode of this show? And I say that, of course, so everyone listening, if you haven't heard it already, go back in our archives. Just a couple shows ago, we have a two-on-one interview with LA Knight. We also have a two-on-one interview with Brian Danielson, both 500 episode spectaculars. But getting back to this, I had been told, I'm just saying straight up, that it was planned for AJ Styles to be Roman's opponent at Crown Jewel, and then LA Knight was going to be used likely at Survivor Series and or the Christmas SmackDown. So I guess those plans changed, and they're just saying, you know what? 
let's strike while the iron is hot. Another reason that's possibly changed is they may want to be using Knight in the Survivor Series match itself or the War Games match, whatever they're going to end up doing. But so I think there was a little bit of a change. There is an argument to be made, Chris, that it is too soon and that they could have waited until late November or December because otherwise you do run the risk of cooling him off now with a loss. But as long as they do a good job protecting him over the next month and especially in the crown jewel match, and I don't have much doubt that they will protect him. You know, they see how hot he is. They're not going to, this isn't Vince McMahon with the book. They're not just going to stomp on him because he's hot organically and and that wasn't the plan. Um, But that's going to be the caution. It's like, I do, I do believe like if I had the book, I would drag it out a little bit more. But as long Mm -hmm. as they protect him, it's going to be fine. And there's no doubt that when you're talking about the crown jewel event, right? And they are trying to make it, I mean, (laughs) outside of the first time they advertised it as equal to or greater than a WrestleMania, uh, since then, uh, it's progressively, they first went for like the legend route and then they circled back around and said, you know what, let's just make it a regular premium live event that has compelling matches and we treat like a big stadium show. And that's what they're doing now. So if you want a main event of a stadium show, as much as I love AJ Styles, and I think a lot of fans love AJ Styles, right now, if you have one stadium show left in 2023, Roman Reigns, LA Knight headlining it, that does make a lot of sense. And remember, it was in Saudi Arabia, Night of Champions, that we got an LA Knight chant from that crowd at the press conference. That's true. That Triple H, that Triple H took note of, so that may play a role as well. That's a great point. Also, Chris, uh, before we move on, am I on an island with this? Just let me know. But Reigns music hits, right? And they put up that huge augmented reality graphic. And I just kind of groaned. Like, they had a chance. The guy's been away for a couple months to improve the visual of his entrance. Jimmy has a new graphic. Jay has a new graphic. Um, Asuka has a new one. There's a couple others that they've recently redone. They could have repackaged it. And it's just exactly the same. It's a guy shoving his crotch in my face. Like this big, tall figure. It has always looked stupid to me. And I was just, when I saw it, I was like, Oh, man, they didn't change it. I wish they did. Is it just me or do you feel the same way with that? I've always been surprised at how bad it looks and if that's the point or not, because he doesn't he's supposed to be doing the Roman hands, arms over your head. Woo-ah the thing, ooh-ah, that's yeah. not at all what the augmented reality thing is doing. It's just throwing your throwing its crotch <laughs> out of your face. So, uh yeah, I did, I did take notice of it. Also because the camera angle was different. They put it like straight on instead of off to the side like right. they normally do. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I could say I'm okay. surprised that it's still the same old thing. Because I liked the Bloodline one with, with all the vines and the blood and all that. Like that one was super yeah. cool. But yeah. this one is just like, it's like, all right, man. Like just, he has, he has a logo. He has so many other things. Tribal Chief. There's so many cool nicknames he has, head of the table. There's so many things they could do. And it's just, Roman's crotch in your face. I feel like they could do better. Uh, but anyway, let's get let's keep going. We got a lot more to talk about. Uh, later backstage on SmackDown, uh, Jimmy sat in the Bloodline dressing room with Roman and Reigns was asking what the hell he was doing. Jimmy said he was just trying to be like Roman, calling the plays as the quarterback, not the first string, the second string. Roman laughed about it. He asked Jimmy what he would do if he was the starter. So Jimmy said he would get after Jay. Roman said that's old news. He should be focused on winning the titles back, tag team titles, because he and Cody Rhodes holding them, Jay and Cody, 
is a huge slap in the face to the bloodline. Jimmy said yeet in agreement. Roman replied, which is now a drop on the show. And we are getting a yeet drop as well as a yeah drop. I just haven't gotten around to it, but folks, they are coming. Uh, Interesting the way this transpired. Reigns went from dismissing Jimmy entirely to being intrigued about his perspective and the idea of using him to reach a goal. They also wasted no time addressing the Jay Cody pairing as something that was problematic for them as an entire group. It is tough to buy into the idea of, let's say, Jimmy and Solo going after the tag team titles. That was my thought in the moment when they just lost at Fastlane and Sokoa lost consecutive tag team title matches before that. But it seemed like that's what Reigns was intimating. He was saying, number one, I don't want Jay and Cody to be champion. But number two, I want you and Solo to be champion. Those titles need to be part of the bloodline. So it was a fine segment. Um, but I found that to be a little interesting kind of dichotomy between the the goals that he stated for them. Yeah, they kept going backstage a few times. I just kept waiting for Roman Reigns to ask Jimmy, like, why are you here? You know, because we it, haven't really... Exactly. ...addressed that. Because remember, you know, after SummerSlam, Roman says, whatever you want, man, you got it. And then Jimmy's basically like, nah. But then we go on a little bit. Jay quits. Roman's gone. Jimmy slides in with Paul Heyman and Solo. Heyman's like, what are you doing here? And then we kind of just never, I expected Roman to come back to like straight up head on. Why are you here? Do you think you're in the bloodline? Maybe we'll get to it. You know, if Jimmy keeps messing up or something like that. But I was kind of surprised we didn't get that acknowledgement. It feels like Jimmy's just back in right now. It does to a degree. It, it feels like the other three are on one page though. And Jimmy doesn't get the full playbook. Like, It feels like Jimmy has the third page of the playbook and the others all have this other plan, but they're not, we don't know that as viewers yet. It just seems to be what they're intimating based on their mannerisms, the way they're speaking and all that type of stuff. And and we will get further into that as we break this down, because there's a number of other elements uh, regarding this storyline. Now we do need to kind of change direction a little bit and talk about hour two of SmackDown, which opened with Triple H and Adam Pierce in the ring. So Triple H called Pierce an unsung hero who had done an incredible job uh, doing a thankless job in his role. Triple H then announced Pierce will not only get some help in his job, he will be promoted to the role of Raw General Manager. Dominic Mysterio interrupted to major heat complaining about Judgment Day losing the tag team titles and Pierce allowing Jay and Cody to defend them before they get the rematch on Monday. Triple H joked, quote, I always thought they were pumping in that noise. I didn't realize how loud it was until I was out here. Obviously an incredible line in reference. That gave Triple H though an opening to explain it was not Pierce who made that decision, but rather the new SmackDown general manager, Nick Aldis. He came out in an awesome blue checkered suit to a somewhat muted reaction because no one really knows Aldis, right? He took a shot at Dom and got a pop. And then he announced his first official act was introducing the newest SmackDown superstar who came over in the trade for Jay. Dom promised to slap whoever it was. He didn't care. He didn't want his spotlight to be taken. And then he found out it was Kevin Owens. He came out to a huge pop, had a blue tape version of his duct tape uh, t-shirt, came in the ring, immediately stunned Dom. Then KO shook all of their hands. I got to tell you, I want that shirt. It looked awesome. Anyway, this was an exceptional segment. It was nice to see Pierce get his flowers in a significant manner and not just be like brushed aside with his job split. 
I would almost have preferred Pierce to be the general manager of WWE, but all just have like a different title for SmackDown, the talent manager of SmackDown or something like that. Because in kayfabe, this guy walked in all this and got an equal job to a guy who had been doing it for three years and just got promoted. So, you know, you can get promoted and then have your responsibilities halved because you're getting more money, you have a better title and less work. That is a promotion, don't get it twisted. But then you have Aldis walk in and get the same title. That to me said, hey, you know, really Pierce should have been put into like a, I don't want to say president of WWE like Jack Tunney back in the day, but a more prominent role where he oversaw all this, but Aldis had full control of SmackDown. I digress. I'm just saying in kayfabe, that's how I would have done it. In terms of the Aldis move, he's been working backstage doing production and agent duties over the last couple of months. So it's cool to see him have an on-screen character as well. It's an interesting decision, and it actually directly models Pierce, who basically retired at 36 and has been working backstage at WWE now for eight plus years, five of them before he was an on-screen character. Aldis, like Pierce then, is only 36 now, and it sure as hell feels like he is a lot more left in the tank, which by the way is another sound drop that I should get on this show. Mark Henry, how do we not have that here? That's ridiculous. Uh, But when I say it's a mirror move, I mean it. Aldis is the sixth longest reigning NWA World's Heavyweight Champion with 1,309 combined days. Pierce is the eighth longest with 1,078 combined days. Aldis, though, has been wrestling for two decades. And in this business, if you can snag a full-time role with benefits at the biggest company in existence, it's kind of hard to argue with that move. He's also Mickey James' husband, by the way. And given what WWE just did with Trish Stratus, you could definitely see her coming back and getting a similar style run in the coming year or two. It was a bit disheartening for me to have Triple H's announcement be something that received no fanfare because the main roster audience has zero idea about Aldis, but it was extremely smart to put him in the ring against the second biggest heel in the company so he could get cheered immediately in that segment. You know he's a good guy because he hates Dominic and he's talking shit to him. So it worked well. Uh, Don't forget Pierce. When he became an authority figure, he just showed up one day. And then that was it. So Aldis had a way better introduction than Pierce did, even though what Aldis, what happened with Aldis wasn't that special. Yes. To the point at the beginning, I'm glad Adam Pierce got that acknowledgement and got an applause from the crowd because he's honestly, I feel like, has to be up there among the best, you know, GMs, leadership figures in recent WWE history. Like, oh, yeah. maybe maybe not as many memorable moments, but just like he plays the role really, really well. He did it well with Sonya, without Sonya. It's just, he fits that spot perfectly. I don't understand how this was a promotion exactly, unless the idea is kayfabe, we're paying you more money to work one job instead of two, but- That's what it is. That's whatever. What I, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, and so, well, they didn't say you're getting a raise, so to speak. I still think well, kayfabe- they said, pro- they said quote unquote, unquote promotion though. I mean, when you get promoted, yes, but generally you get how it was a promotion. I did Fair. The the uh, all this comes out. It was also kind of weird because all this. I think the reaction too, because he was, I think, standing off to the side. I think so. Like he didn't get a ring entrance. So like it wasn't like the crowd, like oh somebody's here. It was there's somebody stand. Like the live crowd is like there's somebody standing here. You know. Okay, and now he gets introduced. So we don't mm-hmm. have a like a shocked reaction because we saw him standing off to the side. I thought the vest, I, uh, the vest under the suit was a little 
weird to me. I just, it didn't quite click. The suit with the the jacket was great. The pants. He's were British, great. dude. I, the line. That's how they dress. The, you mentioned you know heat with Dom. He goes, "I'm a big fan of your dad." <laughs> it turns away, big pop from the crowd. Love that. And to your point, not only does using Dom get a bigger cheer for Nick, all of this coming into this role, it's the first time in a long time that we got a big reaction for a oh man look who's on this brand now you know event happening like when john cena moved to raw back in the day or whatever it was you don't really get you don't get those reactions anymore because it it's split it's not split people cross shows it doesn't really matter so to get a whoa kevin owens is on smackdown like and that was worthy of a reaction so i think they planned that whole thing out very well Dom sold the stunner incredibly and they did a good job of making that segment feel like a big deal when it they easily could have uh, dropped the ball on that. Yeah, for sure. Now, in terms of Owens, because we didn't really spend a lot of time speaking about him, I really want to know the inside baseball on this. Like we correctly noted last week that coming out of KO and Sammy losing that tag team title match, it did seem like their team had reached their conclusion. Uh, in defeat there. It was really the last thing for them to do together, challenge for the title one more time. But they didn't have to be split up because of that necessarily. And more than anything, I wondered in the moment on Friday night what this meant for Sammy on Raw. Like, maybe we were too focused on Chad Gable this entire time, and it's going to be Sammy knocking off Gunther. Maybe Sammy's going to go after the World Heavyweight Championship. Years ago, I would have had a problem with this. But I have to assume that not only does it make sense in kayfabe for both guys, but that the way creative works now, the way the talent department in WWE works now, it was cleared and approved by both of them just because like, they are legitimately best friends, at least best friends in terms of the industry. And they clearly had a blast together uh, for this period of time that they were a team working on the same show, all of that. After WWE for so many years had kept them apart, almost unnecessarily saying if they're on the same show, they either have to be fighting or teaming. Um, and, and it feels like they kind of did that again, where they're like, if they're on the same show, they can't just be two individuals working together who are friends. And let's put Owens on SmackDown. So I'm going to be very curious to find out. And we maybe got a little bit of an inkling about it on the next segment we're going to talk about. But what the plan is for Owens on SmackDown and what the guys thought of them making this move. I would really like to be able to interview one of them and ask them that question. Yeah, I wonder that all the time, whether it's friends, whether it's couples, when one's on one show and one's on the other, when you have a split, um, it's 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 notable. You know, you're not traveling together anymore. So curious how that goes. So we'll keep going with SmackDown. Reigns backstage was infuriated when he saw that Owens is now on the show, along with Cody and Jake, given their tag team champions. And he said, all this is happening. And Jimmy, you're just sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing about it. So he started to get heated. Jimmy asked if he was serious. And Roman said, no, but imagine if I was, which I thought was a great line and just great gaslighting. Uh, like, it, it took an hour and he's right back to gaslighting immediately uh, on SmackDown. He tried exiting, Jimmy did, uh, but he almost crossed in front of Roman, who went ice cold, stared at him. So Jimmy nervously went around him behind him. He grabbed Solo, said yeet again, only for Roman to get pissed off about that too. There wasn't much here to analyze that we haven't already, but I am curious how long Jimmy is going to remain in the bloodline. This is what you mentioned earlier. My expectation coming in 
was that Reigns, once he returned, would use and then quickly reject Jimmy because he turned on them. But while he did flash some of that Friday in segments like this, he was more accepting of him throughout the entire show than I thought he would be in storyline. Yeah, it felt like Roman realized he could use Jimmy to do some stuff. And but not to the point where he feels like he's in leadership, like he's a quarterback, you know, doing all the things. I did laugh when Roman was like, oh, you're, oh, you're, the, you're the quarterback, quarterback, huh? And Jimmy goes, you, you know, second string, you know, you're the starter. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny between the two of them. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fine. I also like the line from Roman, Cody's on my show, Jay's on my show, Jimmy's on my couch. And then Jimmy's like, oh, shit, I think you're probably going to do something. <laughs> So, so I uh it was it was a nice interaction not much progress but you're right I I do again wonder how long that'll stay together. And you know we were also among many people I should say who kind of trashed the Jimmy storyline for that like 2 week span before it started getting going and started making sense but the character that WWE has given him it's kind of brilliant. Like he's now tried and failed to be the enforcer like Solo the charismatic right-hand man like Jay, and then the quarterback, the leader like Roman. Basically, he's like an imposter who's looking for acceptance just so he can find some level of fulfillment. But in the end, no matter what he does, he's inadequate. He can't do any of the roles. And through all of this, everything that he does makes us detest him more and more. But at the same time, you kind of feel a little bit bad for him because his brother hates him. His younger brother detests him and Roman Reigns completely disrespects him, his cousin. So no one likes this guy and yet he's still a heel. And I just think that's really interesting character building. Uh, It's very multi-layered and it's not something that even we love what they're doing with Jay and we love what they're doing with Drew McIntyre and and Sami Zayn and whomever. The Jimmy character, even though we don't like him and even though he can be annoying and, you know, when they started this new version of the character, you know, a month ago or six weeks ago, it it was bothersome. Maybe it was two months ago. Um, Now, seeing the way he's acting, it's like, you know what? We kind of trash Jimmy for not having the acting chops that Jay does. He does have those chops, but in a completely different way. Yes, that, that is how I felt about it for a bit. And his story is honestly even more nuanced than Jay it is, yeah. was. And whether or not you want to give WWE's writing team that, that much credit or not, you know, we said from the beginning, the story seems to be Jay is not used to being on his own and doesn't know how to handle being on his own. Mm-hmm. And everything we've seen since then continues to illustrate that. And now he doesn't know how to be part of a group. So he's trying to find him. Jimmy, right. Continues. Yeah, that makes sense. Jimmy, yes. Okay, cool. So let's go to the tag team championship match, which was on SmackDown. Cody and Jay defending their titles against A-Town down under. This was an open challenge that was held off the show. Cody got the hot tag and hit two disaster kicks. Austin Theory caught him with the cradle neckbreaker, but ate the Cody and then a crossroads for the title retention in what felt like a really short match. Uh, Theory and Grayson Waller were fine as like an undeveloped mid-card heel team for them to beat. But they had been so successful working together, the heels, that it just felt like they should have looked stronger in the match. I know it was just a means to continue telling a story that we're going to get to in a minute. But still, I'm wondering what your thoughts were on the match itself. 
I was stunned how short this was. Like I, I was looking forward to it, like really, because I've we've been a big fan of what Austin Theory and Grayson Waller are doing together, and they were what like they said, like three and zero coming into the match, and then just treated like nothing. Surprising. I'm sure some of it had to do with you know the length of the show and whatever, mm-hmm. but that was disappointing. Also, Jey Uso wrestling in pants. I hadn't noticed that before. I don't know if it was a new thing, but he had been in shorts forever. It looked a little different to me. Not mm-hmm. bad or good. Just I wrote it down. Uh, I did look it up while you were talking. So that match went 924. I am guessing there was like a four and a half minute commercial there in the middle. And if so, then that's why it felt like it was so short because half the match yeah. was taken up by commercial. But it really did not feel like we got enough action for Theory and Waller to get over as part of the match, which should have been among the goals here, not just for Cody and Jay to retain, but for Theory and Waller to look like a legitimate team. And coming out of the match, I did not feel like that part was accomplished. And that was a shame. So yep. uh, Jimmy and Solo came out to Reigns music and confronted Jay and Cody as they exited, walking up the ramp with the titles. Sokoa got in Rhodes's face first, but Reigns quickly came out and got even closer as he actually began jawing at Rhodes. It was tough to make out what he was saying, but it seemed like it was something like, get out of my show. This is my show, not your show. Uh, Cody said nothing this whole time. Aldis comes out, gets between them, and then Roman slowly starts backing away and SmackDown goes to commercial break. I truly, Chris, could not have predicted Roman and Cody staring down like that nearly six months before WrestleMania with Nick Aldis, of all people, getting between them. If you said, hey, Silver King, predict something that's going to happen on SmackDown this Friday, I could never have predicted this. Obviously, a bonus touch here, Aldis has history with Rhodes feuding with him for the NWA title. But holy shit, did you hear the crowd reaction to this? That is exactly what you want. It was a perfect major show, mid-year tease, and a reminder that Cody is still the guy, and this match is coming. On top of the moment, the production was incredible. Perfect camera work. And it really points to the larger topic we've discussed on this show. We won't know whether Reigns retaining over Rhodes at WrestleMania 39 was the right decision until we see how the end of the storyline plays out. And while it has absolutely been a rough road with Roman absent for these two months or so. We got right back on track Friday night. It also leads to so many questions. The biggest one being whether Cody would actually address this on Raw. He ultimately did not. But what it felt like for me was the restart of Roman's grip on the title crumbling. The first crack being Jay, the right-hand man, turning. Obviously, Jimmy is in purgatory, And now Jay is thriving with Roman's rival and he's doing it right in his face while one of his other top rivals of this reign, Kevin Owens, joins the show simultaneously. It was an incredible moment and it was an incredible piece of storytelling for I thought the Roman Reigns character on Friday night. Yep, it was a reminder that this is gonna be the main event for WrestleMania 40, for sure. I think it's maybe not a coincidence that there were some rumors or reports, whatever, that popped up around that time that there are no plans for Rock Roman at WrestleMania 40. So they they, they kind of 
made that clear. It's October 17th, calling it Roman Cody. Cody goes over. It's happening. Mark it down. I know I said this last year, but I was going to say we had I, I was going to say we had we made the same comment like in November, in January, in March. Like we, you know, we were sure that Roman Re- uh, that uh, excuse me, Cody Rhodes was going over Roman Reigns at WrestleMania 39. I, I'm going to step off a little bit. I'm going to say I'm not going to give you 100 percent. But yes, to your point, like 85, 90 yeah. percent. It is very clear that they're teasing I, this for a reason. This wasn't accidental. It wasn't to rile the fans up when WWE no, does something not. like this. Well, no, what I'm saying is when WWE does something like this, they do it because they mean to deliver on it. They're not going to put this on the show on the season premiere with Roman and Cody, and then just like give it to us at Royal Rumble or something like that. Yeah. I I, I thought Cody's reaction to Roman's music hitting was great as well. He's high five the kids. Then the music hits and his head jumps up and he's just like, look, and the camera does a great job of panning to the front of his face. Um, Great stuff. Like you said, the the production of it was very well done as well. Nick Aldis breaking him up. It's a great image as well. Um, and again, Roman's music, man. When that hits, it feels like big things are happening. And when you feel that around Cody again, you're pulled back into it. Loved it. Yeah, awesome. for sure. Now, there was one more moment uh, or one more segment on SmackDown we have to cover. Uh, we had Knight versus Sokoa still to come in the main event. Knight had a really impressive pickup power slam. Jimmy ran down and jumped in the ring late, only for Cena to follow him and take him out with an AA before he could superkick Knight. Sokoa caught Cena blind with a Samoan spike, only for Knight to turn him around, hit the BFT, and win with the 1-2-3 to a huge pop. After he jumped off the ropes while celebrating, Reigns snuck in the ring, speared Knight's ass cold to the canvas, and then teased him with the title, calling himself a legend and LA an overnight success. This was exactly what it needed to be to close the show. We've mentioned that Cena Sokoa was expected to happen at Crown Jewel, but given the writer's strike seemingly on its way to being over, it's possible they pivoted to the tag team title match with Cena doing something else entirely, or they're saving Cena for Survivor Series, though that's further off and even tougher to predict his availability. Maybe he'll just be around here and there until he's called away. Anyway, Knight obviously needed a significant win like this, He's just the third person to pin Sokoa clean in singles competition. And Reigns obviously had to come out and be the one that stands tall on top of the season premiere, given it was his first night back. The established star versus the overnight success storyline, it's exactly what it should be for them. And I thought this was the perfect close to SmackDown on Friday night. Yep, that was all really good stuff. I'm curious, assuming we are getting Roman Elenette at Crown Jewel, how they kind of make it happen? Is it Roman Reigns just saying, nah, you're nothing, I'll accept your challenge? Or does Ellen and I do something to convince Roman to say yes? That is the next step in this now if we get there. Uh, and to the Cena point, the rider strike is over, but the SAG after strike right. hit, a, hit another bump the other day where one of the sides walked away from the table, I think. So that continues to go forward with, at least right now, no end in sight. So... Cena's availability, obviously, as he said, after Fastlane depends on that. But based on what happened a couple of days ago, there may be more Cena at this point than uh, that we thought. Well, it's more, but it's when. And that that's I think they're keeping their cards on the table a little bit and saying, you know, we don't exactly know if and when John is going to be available. So we're not going to book his yeah. matches until like the week before these shows. I, that's what it feels yeah. like to me. 
because there's like there's different ways they can go. I said title match earlier. I didn't really mean that. What I meant was it could be, you know, Cody and Jay versus Solo and Jimmy or um, Cody and Jay could possibly get a title rematch. And it's Sokoa and Cena, which was the plan and seemed like the plan, even to the point that earlier in the show, Reigns told Sokoa, don't worry about Cena right now. Go after L.A. Knight. So the question is, how does Cena factor into this? Is he going to be part of the Survivor Series match? I, I actually don't think he should be personally, uh, but it's a possibility that that happens. There's just a variety of ways that this can go. So we had some cliffhangers, you know, coming out of SmackDown, but we also got a ton of major storyline and character development on that show, which just allowed it to stand out. Now, obviously, plenty happened on SmackDown that did not involve the bloodliner LA Knight or John Cena. Um, and we will discuss all of that in our next segment, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But before we get to that, there was a significant continuation not just from this storyline, but with many of these players on Raw Monday night with the big headline of it, I would say, being Drew McIntyre truly emerging once again as a legitimate main eventer on Monday nights. Now, despite McIntyre being the biggest part of this, it was actually Sami Zayn who opened Raw. He had mixed emotions about Owens being traded to SmackDown and now him being given the chance to prove he's on a level of a world heavyweight champion. However, he also had to address Jay being the reason that KO is gone and Judgment Day souring their entire tag team title reign. Then he credited fans for helping him toward his best year of his career. Judgment Day came out excited that they got one thorn in their side KO removed while focused on dominating the show. Rhea Ripley said normally they'd recruit someone like Sammy, who's a lost soul, but they decided to take him out instead. Jay made the save, the heels retreated. Then backstage, Sammy told Jay he wants them to be good, he wants them to be friends, but as much as he wants that, it is Jay's fault that KO is now on SmackDown. And not only that, he even took their tag team titles. Jay was obviously a bit offended by that, so he walked away. Sammy threw a little tantrum to himself once Jay walked away, and then he actually chased after Jay, and the camera followed him doing that backstage and made good with him before the segment was over. What I liked most about this was they wasted no time in hitting the KO topic right on the head to start the show. They gave Zayn a platform to reassure fans, hey, I'm not about to fade into the background here. I'm gonna be a big time player as a singles performer on Raw because so often in the old WWE creative regime, a tag team would get split, even one made of two stars and one guy would get elevated while the other guy fell behind. With a promo like this, Sammy remained firmly in the top of the card. I'd almost rather not had Judgment Day come out because their show opening promos are immensely repetitive. I like what they do backstage and in the ring, they're wrestling, all of that. But when they come out and do a show opening promo, it is the same shit every single week. But what I liked even more than the opening segment with Sammy was the backstage segment. I felt like that was fully reality-based, how people think and how they speak. I don't actually believe I've ever seen one wrestler like run after another to make good like that before and seen a camera follow them in the same manner. I literally don't think I've ever seen that in wrestling. It's not like a, a crazy inventive thing, but it felt that way I was as I was watching it. So this, for me, hit in every single way to open Raw on Monday night. 
yeah i just like when jay goes away i'm i kind of like fade out and i'm waiting for the camera to just kind of zoom in and then fade out into something else i'm just i thought the segment was over you're trained to think that the segment was over and then it wasn't i was like oh that was interesting and i was like that's it felt kind of abrupt usually they drag these things out um and like sammy was feeling real feelings you would have so it was interesting i was surprised it played out the way it did so quickly mm -hmm. until you know other stuff happened with sammy sure and we will get to that in a moment unfortunately that did happen much later in the show and we have more to talk about so seth rollins opened hour two of raw he called out drew mcintyre to finish their conversation from last week rollins pointed to mcintyre's conversation with rhea ripley last week which remember we pointed it out it was in the background of another segment that was happening um, drew called seth rattled because mcintyre won last time they fought drew brought up the bloodline again so seth snapped he needs to move on and get over it McIntyre then brought up beating Brock Lesnar in front of no one at WrestleMania during the pandemic, stepping up to carry WWE during that time, and then finally getting another chance only for the bloodline to cost him at Clash at the Castle. He said he wouldn't want to waste his third shot, and he would force Rollins to reinvent himself yet again, which was very funny because Seth does reinvent himself like every year and a half. Rollins said making excuses does not get you to the promised land, and when he wins at Crown Jewel, McIntyre will have no one to blame but himself. There were a couple parts here that were a little clunky, but there was also a beautifully scripted Broken Dreams reference in this promo, which really hit. And the idea of Rollins scratching and clawing back to the top, allowing him to know McIntyre's exact struggles, and then giving him the opening to tell him, look, man, stop being a bitch about it. It's old news. That was perfect. The best storylines, not just in wrestling, but in entertainment, in movies and TV, they come when both sides of the conflict are reasonable and rational in their motivations. And that is the case here. McIntyre is right. He would be champion if not for the bloodline. They screwed him. He should be pissed off. Rollins is right that Drew's got to move on. You can't dwell on shit like that in your life. Otherwise, you're always going to be stuck in the past. Real strong confrontation segment. It towed the line of kayfabe with some reality mixed in. It's not the most exciting feud thus far, but it does feel like the intensity of it is ratcheting up for what could be a big time main event caliber match at Crown Jewel. It's a completely different feud than the Nakamura one, which was sneak attacks, attacking injuries, all this stuff. It's it's very calm. There's no no one's yelling at each other. It's literally just McIntyre showing up saying, I want to, it's not saying you want a title, Drew nods, and then they just kind of talk about it. And and it feels almost like a heavyweight fight in that sense, in that like there doesn't need to be some weird thing that happened between Seth and Drew for this to happen. It's just Drew on a mission, leaving all of his friends behind him to get back what he thinks uh, he needs to have, and Seth kind of figuring that out along the way. So up and down the promo between the two, but I've really, really liked what they've done with these two. It just feels different. It feels like a big deal. It's pulling Seth out of the goofiness, even though he's still dressing goofy. <laughs> There's very little of the goofiness from him on the mic when he's in there with Drew because he knows he, he can't kind of be like that with Drew because that's a, a serious contender. So, uh, yeah really, really continue to be really, really 
hot about all this. We've spoken a lot about Rollins attire. I believe if he just stopped wearing the glasses, just doing that would be a huge improvement. Mm-hmm. Like you can be flamboyant yep. in your clothes, but the glasses just take it. It makes, it makes it like Elton John. It's like so over the top that like it ruins the seriousness of the character. So throw those glasses away and you have a guy who looks totally fine is what I'm trying to say. I, I do think it, I but I do think it helps contrast with McIntyre, who is this big, serious brute who's just like not messing around. And it looks like and it, it makes Seth look like he is. Let's just hope he's not coming out in a kilt with the Claymore, you know, at Crown Jewel. If we want him to be serious, because he's a badass, like he doesn't need the props. I just really hope they get away from that. It, it's annoyed me for a long time. Uh, Damien Priest backstage admitted to Finn Balor that he felt a little bit bad for J.D. McDonough, that he got taken out by McIntyre last week. Priest started rallying them to go after McIntyre and kick his ass. But Dominic Mysterio said mommy told them not to go after Drew. Ripley told the guys focus on winning the titles back. She said she was focused on getting her division back in order by herself so they could go and dominate Raw again as a faction. Most interesting here, there was some further dissension, not between the guys, but rather Priest and Ripley. It almost seems like he sees her stepping up as a leader and feels that's against their gimmick, which I found to be pretty interesting. I don't know if you had anything on this, um, but I wanted to give you the opportunity here. Um, Priest's comment about feeling bad for JD was interesting. Um, It just kind of goes to show as this entire main event segment we've been talking about is this thing, the storyline touches everybody, Mm -hmm. like all the major players on both shows. It's such a free flowing show that you feel like you have to watch all of it because something could happen that impacts somebody else. It's not segment, 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 segment. Nobody interacts with anybody. It's they're they're all their own little bubbles. It's just this whole thing touches everybody here. Mm -hmm. It's, it makes it feel like a real thing going on. And it just makes for really good television. And I also feel like I know WWE posts a lot of full segments on YouTube, but it feels like if you were only to consume it that way, you're missing some of the nuances of yeah. the way the show weaves in and out and the way the shows fit together. If you're just watching these individual broken up clips, sometimes they don't air the entire thing. They cut them short a little bit or they skip around if it's a really long segment. Um, But even if they're in full and you just watch them in like a playlist, it just feels like some of those little intricate points aren't caught. Whereas if you're watching and paying attention for the entire show, you're picking those up. And that's some of what we try to share here when we give you the breakdowns of all these segments. So later backstage, uh, McIntyre found Zane and apologized for the way he spoke to him last week. He also said Sammy has proven himself to be a leader and a changed man since leaving the bloodline even though people had doubts about him, except he criticized Sammy for immediately forgiving Jay, even though Jay has proven to historically be a bad guy, whereas Sammy started out as a babyface before obviously he joined the bloodline. Zayn reiterated what Rollins said, McIntyre has to put the bloodline behind him, and he's an example of someone, he being Sammy, who has done that. McIntyre said Zane cannot relate to the situation that he's in because Sammy has never been world champion and that happy-go-lucky attitude that he has will not get him to the promised land. Sammy came back saying he'd prove that he is at that level next week one-on-one. And Chris, I actually texted you after this segment and we never text during shows. I wrote, quote, fuck, 
Drew is good. Just like I said after the Sammy J backstage segment, this is the type of creative that just comes across completely real and sensible. Continuity, long-term storytelling to the nth degree. The only thing missing really was Drew pointing out that Cody has also not gotten over the bloodline because that is true. And we saw that proven out on Friday. Also, the fact that he's getting involved with Jay, Cody is. But McIntyre is doing a superb job towing this line of a tweener where absolutely nothing he says is wrong. But at the same time, he's being combative and confrontational with all of the top baby faces. It feels like it's only a matter of time before he turns heel. And we as viewers now get to sit and wait for the catalyst that turns him. The character work here from Drew and Sammy, I thought it was super compelling, not just in this segment, but the entire episode. The best heels are the ones who think they're right or maybe are right, Mm -hmm. but are going about it in a bad way. Drew being upset that Sammy forgave Jay, even though Jay is now consistently doing the things to get back on Sammy Zayn's good side, you know, helping him, saving him, you know, going through all these things, talking things out while Drew didn't do any of that. Drew didn't put in any of the work to stay friends with all these people or whatever like that. And now Jay is now the better friend and Drew's off in the corner pouting about it because of things that happened in the past. He's not wrong. He's just kind of going about it the wrong way. And so it creates just natural tension between everybody. And it's just, like you said, really, really good individual character work from him. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if I can sell you on this, okay? Rollins beats McIntyre at Crown Jewel. Drew turns heel after the match. Gets screwed by the referee, something weird happens. McIntyre beats Rollins for the World Heavyweight Championship at Survivor Series. Sami Zayn, Drew McIntyre, WrestleMania. Um, it would be a big match. Sami's a huge face. Drew can be a good heel. I I would just need a bit more story behind it, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it can work. I wouldn't do it right now because they're just... They're guys who have very rarely interacted with each other over the years. So you kind of have to kind of build some stuff. Well, we're starting it now, six months out. I mean, they just had a whole confrontation. Right, 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 right. I'm trying to think, like, I'd been thinking, like, if Drew wins, whether it's Crown Jewels or Series or whoever, who is next for him? Who is the next, what is the next big match for that title? I could, I could see that. I mean, Sammy didn't, you know, he hasn't won the, hasn't won a world title in WWE outside of NXT. Um he very, very over had the tag team moment last year. I, I think I could see that. Yeah. And Kevin Owens is on SmackDown. Triple H is totally in charge. Yeah. Yeah. And also it could be a situation where Sammy even wins the Royal Rumble potentially and challenges Drew because he's done with the bloodline stuff. You know, it's, he's out of that. That allows Cody well, yeah. well, rather than Cody going back to back Royal Rumble winner. He wins like Elimination Chamber or, you know, they figure out another way to get that. That's the whole thing, because I don't think we're going to have Cody win two Royal Rumbles in a uh, row. He might. Are we? I, I, I don't know, <laughs> he so. might. It's very possible. So yeah. it, it could be. That's kind of the other whole part of that. But 
Yeah. Okay. I'm just curious to bring it up. Uh, Tag team championship, this main evented Raw, Cody and Jay defending against Judgment Day. The champions backstage said they wouldn't let JD own Raw. Dom ran in three minutes into this match and put Priest's foot on the ropes after he ate a crossroads. Why all this happened so soon into the match, I have no idea. Cody then hit a pedigree after commercial and the Cody for a false finish. Priest chokeslammed Rhodes into the ring apron. Dom prevented Jay from hitting a splash. Sammy ran down to equalize Dom. Then Cody took a low blow that cameras mostly missed before eating a razor's edge through the announce table, which was an incredible spot. Jay avoided coup de gras and hit spears on both challengers only to get super kicked by Jimmy, who ran out of the crowd, caught him on the apron. Balor took advantage of that super kick with a coup de gras and Judgment Day retained the titles after about 14 minutes with Pyro going off as all four of the heels celebrated on the ramp. And it also became clear here and I didn't really mention this, but Ripley was on the phone with someone earlier in the show. Clearly, that person was Jimmy. Now, I got to tell you, Chris, I've been immensely positive in this entire main event segment. And I'm going to be pretty positive in the next segment, too. But I did not like this match one bit. I'm not talking about the booking or the title change. I'm talking about the match itself. It just did not sit right with me. The match story and the pacing was off. There was no reason to give us Dom at ringside plus a finishing sequence three minutes into the match. That basically told the viewer, these other guys that, by the way, are going to be your new champions in 15 minutes, they're not worthy. They would have been squashed had it not been for interference. Then the baby faces hit their finisher like four or five minutes later, and that gets broken up. That's something that you want to save for the end of the match. I thought that was weird as well. Then Sammy comes out, he takes one shot into the steps and he's dead. He 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 doesn't come back to life. He's taken a million of those shots and he, but he's just out. Jimmy attacks Jay. That somewhat follows the SmackDown story, except not really. Roman told him two things. A, us not having the titles is an affront to our heritage and our family. B, stop worrying about Jay. Jimmy did not bring the titles any closer to the bloodline. He just took them away from Jay. Ideally, you would think that they would cost Judgment Day the titles because Sokoa and Jimmy would want to take the titles off Jay and Cody to follow what Roman was asking of them. Now, maybe that's explained Friday as Jimmy not listening to Roman. And that is definitely yeah. possible but it did not square into what Rain said on Friday. But those were my specific problems with the match Monday. We can talk about the title change in a moment, but I did not like the match itself. Wouldn't be a Monday Night Raw without a Judgment Day tag team main event, huh? Right. I mean, that's that's even though there was a title change, it just opening with Judgment Day segment beat down, finishing with a Judgment Day tag team match. I've said it many times on the show. It is get it has gotten very repetitive on Raw. I still love everybody involved. It's just like in that case, even when we got a title change, I was like, all right, guess we're going back the other way. It's just it, it didn't feel fresh. The match was weirdly laid out, like you said. And then I do think to your point, I do think we get Roman on Friday, assuming he's on SmackDown mm -hmm. saying I think we'll get Jimmy walking into SmackDown thinking he did a great thing, yeah. looking for love from all Roman. swaggy Roman has to say, no, that's yeah, that's not at all what I I, I said. I said, stop worrying about Jay. I said, we need the title. You failed, blah, blah, blah. I, I'm guessing that's what we get. Um, but yeah, just the whole thing felt off. 
So let me address the title change now, or let us address the title change now. I don't have a problem with it, okay? But I'm not sure it was the best decision. The reception to Cody and Jay winning has been enormous. And moving the titles back immediately, it just feels rigid creatively. I'm not sure why they couldn't have pivoted and let them get a one-month title reign out of it and just change them at Crown Jewel, which is a couple of weeks away. I mean, look, credit to Cody and Jay. They defended them three times in like nine days. They even have a tag team finisher and a name for that finisher. I don't think WWE even had enough time to make like the Y2AJ shirts for them. They don't, they don't have tag team shirts on the WWE shop. Those would sell like gangbusters. So I guess what's going to determine whether this was the right or wrong move is what comes next. If it's Jay and Cody against Jimmy and Solo at Blood Money in the Sand, then that can't be a title match now based on booking. Okay. But then what was the point of moving Jay to Raw and making a huge deal of, it's just me, Oos, if he's fighting his brother literally one month later? If the play is to do a title rematch at Crown Jewel and just build these sides for Survivor Series, and when I say rematch, I mean Judgment Day, against Cody and Jay, and then they're building the sides with Jimmy and Jay on opposite sides for Survivor Series, that would be much better. But then, as I just said, the title change could have been saved because they clearly aren't going to be flipping them again. So like I said, I'm not here to complain because it wasn't bad booking or storytelling or anything like that. It was fine. But my reaction Monday night coming out of this was largely disappointment on the way it was handled and that they didn't really strike while the iron was hot with a slightly longer reign of a few more weeks for Cody and Jay. Yeah, I, you've got a lot with Cody and Jay, especially after that press conference, especially, you know, what they've been doing and, and, and all that. It seemed like, I think we said at the time, I was like, after watching that press conference, I kind of want these guys to go on a bit mm -hmm. of a run. We've got some time before WrestleMania. I'm guessing they just didn't pivot away from what their things were. But another point, how are we supposed to do a solo Jimmy versus Cody J feud when they're on opposite brands now and have no reason to interact? Right. And that maybe they're the not going to having. Maybe they're not. But like that was the whole point. Again, also, Jimmy showed up on Raw. He's not on Raw, you know, right. Supposedly have this split, but these things keep happening. Um, and so I, I don't know necessarily that is or if it is, they're going to have to kind of explain it away. So it was very surprising. I think disappointing is a good word, but I guess we got to see what's next. Would you like if like Nick Aldis on Friday was like, your pay is suspended for a month because you showed up on the show without clearance? I would love that for many reasons, most notably, uh, kayfabe money. Yeah, being suspended love kayfabe without money. pay for a month. Yeah. I will end on something positive when discussing this match, though. This did give me the old Attitude Era feeling of I better tune into Raw because something significant could happen any given Monday. And it was refreshing also to have a shorter title reign for a change, even if this was like absurdly short. You know, when you say a short title reign, it's like four, six, eight weeks, like, you know, something that you can still sink your teeth into a little bit. I feel like we just got a taste. It's like if someone put a like delicious filet with truffle butter and, a, you know, I don't eat loaded potatoes, but I know other people do. And loaded potatoes are for me like sriracha mashed potatoes right in front of me. And you got two bites into it. You're like, man, I cannot wait to keep eating this. And then they just take the plate away from you and throw it in the trash. That's kind of what it felt like with Cody and Jay's title reign. Yeah, kind of. I'm looking up the length of the title reigns here. So Judgment Day won it from Sammy. 
In KO, they held it for 35 days. Cody and Jay held it for nine days. And now it's back yeah. to Judgment Day. Did you like, though, what I was saying? Like, did it feel to you like, hey, man, anything can happen on Raw when that happened? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm always a fan. I'm generally a fan of shorter title reigns as opposed to really long, drawn-out ones. There's positives and negatives on both sides. But I like that idea that, hey, someone could win the title here. And you never know. It's also the third surprise um, tag team championship change that we've gotten between WWE and AEW in the last like 10 days. Because the AEW titles changed on TV, which was a surprise. And then twice it's happened on WWE, first at Fastlane and then here on Raw. So I thought that was interesting. Real quick before we move on to the next segment, Chris, we've spent years on this show begging for long-term storytelling, intertwined storylines, continuity, all the things that WWE was missing. And in some cases, stuff that WWE never really had, at least to a significant degree. To me, it is immensely cool how almost everyone we just spoke about in this main event segment is interconnected, which is why I wanted to spend so much time on the main event today. LA Knight is probably the only person who truly has a siloed storyline. Like right now, it's pretty much just him and Reigns. Obviously, he has the Cena connection, but that's pretty much it. Rollins, you could say to a degree with Drew McIntyre, but we've seen him have relationships with all of these guys, especially the other baby faces on Raw. But anyone else, Roman, Sammy, Jay, Jimmy, Drew, KO, Judgment Day as a group, they've all worked with or against each other either this week or in the very recent past. That mixed with more reality-based storylines and characters it really feels like WWE creative is humming along right now at a way that you could even make an argument it has not yet under Triple H just because of how interconnected every single major storyline feels right now. Yep, it's, it's kind of what I mentioned earlier, but yeah, you feel like you can't turn away because there could always be a segment that plays into something else. It's something like you said that you can't, just get by watching the YouTube clips. So it's it's really nuanced and there's a lot of attention to detail being paid, maybe more than ever before, and it makes it worth watching. Yeah, no question about that. Folks, that is finally the conclusion of the main event segment of this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, which allows us to move on to perhaps your favorite segment. You know it, you do love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some Shorty. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right, let's start with Rhea Ripley and Shayna Baszler, who fought in a non-title match. Ripley cut a short promo before the bell. Rhea hit a really nice missile dropkick, but Shayna countered Riptide into an armbar attempt only for Ripley to deadlift her into a powerbomb. This brought Nia Jax down after five minutes with Raquel Rodriguez attacking her. Zoe Stark then somersaulted Jax off the barricade, and Rodriguez booted her in the face only for Nia to dodge a charge into the steel steps. Zoe eventually kicked Rhea, leading to the DQ. Ripley threatened Jax and nearly body slammed her, only for Stark to dropkick her in a crossbody, uh, despite a lot happening here. This 
lacked for me, some needed heat, but I really do believe, honestly, it was because of the crowd. Because a lot happened here that you would think people would pop for and get really energized about. Later backstage, Ripley confronted Pierce. She was really pissed off. He laid down the law and made a title match. So last week we spoke about, hey, it's pretty clear they're gonna do a triple threat. Eh, maybe they'll do a fatal four-way and we'll get Shayna in there to take the fall. Forget that. Suddenly we are looking at a fatal five-way. It seems unnecessarily convoluted to me, but to be fair, this is what they set up weeks ago with all of Nia's attacks upon her return. She attacked all of these women with the idea of building this match. So this was planned. I'm mixed on this because, again, the crowd was so terrible that much of it fell flat, but I saw absolutely nothing wrong with the booking itself. And I liked that Pierce wasn't necessarily inclined to make this a five-way until Ripley got in his grill. So I am gonna give it a good. I just wish that they would get a little bit more creative, do a championship scramble, just do something a little bit different than a fatal five-way match. Yeah, I, I did like the beginning of Rhea Shana. It felt like a big deal when it started. You know, the the match was what it was. The reaction was not great. Rhea's reaction to Pierce's announcement of like being in a panic or being scared is like kind of the first time we've ever seen that from this Rhea character. Normally she's mm -hmm. mad or dismissive or whatever, but she was like freaking out a little bit. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a different reaction we've seen from her in a while, which I think was a good thing. It kind of emphasized, you know, how unique of a, grouping this is. Absolutely. And you do also have to question, like they're doing a five person match in early November and then in late November. Now, Ripley may not be involved, but you would expect a couple of these women probably to be involved. Uh, they're going to do a War Games match or a Women's Survivor Series match. So it just feels like it's a lot of people jammed together. But to be fair, the WWE women's division does need to be built up and putting five women or really four other women in the title picture in one shot that is a good way to do that. So overall, uh, I was pleased with it. Uh, the Miz backstage was angry about not being on the show until late in the season premiere of Raw. He made fun of Zayn crying over Owens and suggested Pierce should be fired. He then thought Aldis might do better with him on SmackDown. Jax literally stepped into the middle of the frame, stole the microphone, saying she does the squashing on Raw, and then Miz was told they were out of time. This, for me, was just something that happened. I, I don't really think we have to grade it or address it, but do you want to say anything? Um, it was, Miz was really funny. He, he did a, he did a good job with that whole thing and just, he's really good and he, he did a good job here. Okay. Let's tackle something a little bit different than usual because normally in this segment, we only talk about segments that happened on WWE TV and we grade them good, bad, or ugly, but some big WWE news actually popped off Saturday following one of those YouTube boxing cards. Logan Paul beat some jabroni, never even heard of the guy. And after it ended in his post-fight interview in the ring, straight up challenged Rey Mysterio for the United States Championship. He said he is a WWE superstar at heart. It's what he truly loves. And he's an American boy, so he wants the title. Mysterio did an interview about it Monday. And long story short, I'm pretty sure Logan is showing up Friday on SmackDown. And clearly this match is going to be happening at Crown Jewel. On Monday, they said he'd be on Raw next week. That's why I'm a little bit confused about where he's showing up, but he's gonna be on WWE TV yeah. next week. Now, we can talk about potential bookings in a second, but off the jump, I love this. 
It now makes sense to me why Ray won the US title instead of Santos Escobar. And we've talked for a while about Logan winning a mid-card title as something that can actually happen, as opposed to him being a world champion unless he actually commits for like an entire year. So for this interview with Paul and the booking here, I'm already going with good, and we haven't even gotten to the TV feud yet. Oh yeah, it just it goes it just it goes back to show Logan Paul does pro wrestling better than anything else he does, mm-hmm. and he was like just born for that business, and it's it's been a perfect fit for WWE to get it. Like whatever you think about these YouTube fights and in whatever. There were a lot of people on my Twitter timeline talking about it. Oh, yeah. The drama that had been going on around this for a long time. And so for for on that stage, Logan Paul to, to talk about WWE and U.S. title, like, it's a big deal. So uh, kudos to everybody for for how that went. Now, tell but me what won, you want too. He did win. He did. Uh, tell me what you think about this booking of the damn territory here. Logan beats Ray, maybe gets Dom's help to do it. Then Logan loses the U.S. title to L.A. Knight at WrestleMania while Ray fights Dom in like a hair versus mask match, their second match. Maybe they even finally come together when it's over. A secondary option would be doing the exact same thing with Escobar turning heel and costing Mysterio the title. But I don't know, man. It kind of feels like the plan. You're going to have L.A. Knight in the main event. You're going to have Logan Paul in a title match on the same show. Knight's going to lose. I mean, I'd be very shocked if he ends Roman's reign after all this time. And I don't think you, I mean, Ray could easily beat Logan. Don't get me wrong. Logan has taken losses in pretty much every match he's been in, I think, except the first one. Um, But in the last one, did he win the last one? Yeah, he beat Ricochet. Oh, Ricochet. I forgot it was Ricochet. Um, So he has a win over a legitimate mid-carder in Ricochet, which establishes him for this. He beats Ray, takes the title. I mean, it is a little bit rough to have two part-time champions on one show, I will admit. But I do believe Reigns is pretty heavily going to be on TV now through WrestleMania. He'll take a week off here in there of TV, but I think he's going to be at Crown Jewel, Survivor Series, obviously Royal Rumble. Like, he's not going to miss any of the pay-per-views. So I think it works. I think they're going to pull the trigger on this. Of all of that, I think the most interesting thing is LA Knight and Logan Paul. Right. Which I said leading into Money in the Bank, I thought should be the SummerSlam match between the two mm-hmm. because those two had incredible heat with each other and just crowd reactions and everything. And so, uh, LA Knight, you know, he's about to get a world title match. If you think he's above a celebrity match, I'd say I think he's the perfect guy for a celebrity title match. Absolutely. Uh, y- he, he's the guy you can put everywhere. You can put all on the shows with Logan Paul as you promote this whole thing. Like those are two guys who will handle kind of mainstream media, if you will, uh, as a way to promote it. So I think that's a really good idea. And I don't know about the Dom Ray stuff, but Santos turning on Ray to help Logan. I could see that happening. And with Ray, you're also maximizing the exposure. And, you know, I mean, he's one of the mm-hmm. most well-known wrestlers, obviously, in the entire world. So it's it's an international headline. Logan Paul beating Rey Mysterio, or at least a North American headline, um, Logan Paul beating Rey Mysterio. And then on top of that, you're right, yes, it, it LA Knight, I think, makes the most sense by far to win the title at WrestleMania, but they could also do it where Santos Escobar goes and fights 
Logan at WrestleMania and gets the win back for the LWO and big baby face moment on that show with Ray's support, obviously. So like there's so many different ways that they could do it. But I'll tell you, man, it makes a lot of sense. And on top of that, WWE selling the sponsorships and guess who's been involved with a lot of the sponsorship matches? Ray Mysterio. So maybe it's a sponsored match and LA with Knight. A title change. LA Knight also. Um, so maybe it's one sponsored match for Crown Jewel and then one for WrestleMania. One with Ray, one with LA Knight, the common denominator being Logan Paul. It just makes a lot of sense. It does. Or or we do the dream match uh, for someone who was shouted out on Raw, I think. Uh, Logan Paul versus Bad Bunny. The oh, celebrity I mean, match to end all celebrity matches. That would be incredible. In Puerto Rico for everything. Oh, man, that would be ridiculous. I'd like to see that in Puerto Rico, though. I mean... Uh, and there are, I, I am hearing that they may be going back. I don't think Logan Paul would get out of there if they did. <laughs> I don't know that he would either. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's keep going here. Next. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. Big meaty men are about to start slapping me tonight. The Intercontinental Championship. Gunther defending against Bronson Reed. Gunther got a fire-based, like, video game-style promo package that was crazy eye-catching before the match. I called it a promo package. It was a video package. Uh, Reed, though, did get a promo package while wearing a suit. Pretty standard. Obviously, these guys banged. Reed hit a huge Death Valley driver, but Gunther got knees up on a senton. Bronson then hit a massive top rope superplex. Gunther dodged Tsunami that followed. He had a shotgun dropkick, a lariat, and a splash for a false finish. So Gunther followed with a ridiculous powerbomb, and he retained the title in 12 minutes. My Lord, you can keep your five-star classics. <laughs> Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> That's, what That's what I want to see. And on Monday night, there's a lot of beef out here. Let me tell you. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. I need some meat. Yeah. What a bludgeoning this match was, okay? Reed's chest was straight up hamburger meat. Gunther sold his ass off. Such a great heel versus heel meat fest. This completely met expectations. And shockingly, the Gunther powerbomb on Bronson Reed, of all people, looked effortless. I don't even know how that's possible. Gunther has such a great, varied skill set. He is one of the best in the world. Top five, no question. There's not really much more to say. Four stars A- minus for the match. Five full slabs of beef here. This, of course, was good. Yep, definitely good. I wouldn't put it, I would still put Bronson Reed and Otis as a meteor moment uh, by the end of the year, but this was definitely right up there in terms of biggest, meatiest moments of the year. I think, you know, a case can be made that it's a meteor moment, and, and AEW has a really good, meaty moment that we uh, will be discussing when that award comes around. But from a match quality standpoint, Gunther and Bronson Reed blew Reed and Otis out of the water. Yes, yes of course. And honestly, I may be selling it short. I said four stars A minus. It might be closer to an A, like a 4.25. It was the match of the night easily. It was fantastic. I thought it was awesome. So I don't want to underplay that. But you're right. From a, a meat standpoint, was there more meat in the ring, perhaps, in Reed and Otis? Maybe. But... Uh, this got more slabs as far as I was concerned on my scale. 
Uh, Johnny Gargano fought Ludwig Kaiser. Giovanni Vinci was ringside, but Tommaso Ciampa was not medically cleared in kayfabe, so he was not there. Gargano hit a slingshot spear to Tornado Facebuster. Vinci tried to help Kaiser outside only to get yelled at. Gargano came back with Willow's Bell and one final beat. So Vinci poked him in the eye during the cover. That led to Johnny breaking the cover. Kaiser immediately caught him with an Inziguri and a turnover DDT for the win in 10 minutes. This was exactly what it needed to be. Kaiser got the win with the numbers advantage. Vinci proved his worth again. And Gargano was built as the strongest man in the match despite losing. All good developments. Yeah, that all made sense and worked. My only real thought about this that I wrote down is Kaiser has a shirt that looks like a new shirt. Mm -hmm. And it just says Kaiser on it in big (laughs) letters. And I'm just trying to wonder who is going to buy that? Nobody. Like it it says like Ludwig, very tiny. It says like aesthetic below that. But it just from far away, just a big shirt that says Kaiser. And I'm like, I don't know if anyone is really going to buy that shirt. I honestly think the only people that might buy that shirt would be like German WWE fans who want to support him. And and that's it. Like, I get, I don't know what the view of the old Kaiser is in Germany right now. Or, no, no, no. I'm, no, I'm saying him. No, well. he's German, like as a person. So I'm saying. No, I know. But I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying like all I, when I saw. Oh, yeah. Who would want to wear a shirt oh, that like, says Kaiser on Kaiser. it? No, yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone. Yeah, you're right. That's a great point. I don't think they would. That, that's yeah. I, it's not a good shirt. Weird uh, decision. It is. I agree. Uh, Gunther later clapped for Kaiser getting the job done and said Vinci didn't do his job, which Gio argued for obvious reasons because he helped win the match. Then Gunther told them he saw Gargano walking backstage and wants to make sure that doesn't happen next week, putting that on Kaiser, who, of course, passed it off to Vinci. We are conditioned to think that any dissension in a group will eventually lead to its splitting. But between this and Judgment Day, I'm starting to wonder if it's just layered storytelling that we're not used to seeing, especially given how long it's been happening without any significant changes coming to fruition. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I can't tell if it's good storytelling, like other things are going on in the show, or they just change their minds on things and, and don't. I think mm-hmm. we kind of need to see it play out a bit more, but it is interesting. That is true. Uh, Maxine Dupree taught Alpha Academy Pilates in the gym while Akira Tozawa hysterically stood in the background, dancing in place, lifting like two pound pink weights. Uh, Chad Gable said he was still going after the Intercontinental title, but they were also going to be going after the tag team titles. New Day came in hearing that they wanted the tag team titles. They were floored, thinking that Academy called them in just because they wanted advice. It resulted in a good faith babyface challenge for next week. And some bonus Tozawa comedy. Uh, I think he did the thank you, but he did arigato instead. I mean, look, was this like classically good? No. Was it bad? No. Was it super silly, funny, and entertaining? You bet your ass it was. So sure, this was indeed good. This was way funnier than I had any expectations of it being. Just like every single part of it. Uh, Tozawa just... it was just, it was funny, man. And in the new day's reaction to it was really funny. I thought Gable really like shined again here and just shows like just how valuable he is. Like Mm -hmm. this is a nonsense backstage segment and he's giving it as all. And like, you're getting into it as a viewer because of how committed he is to this. He takes this chop chop again. He still says he's coming for Gunther. I still love that. They keep hinting at that. We're going to come back to it at some point. Maybe at a WrestleMania. I, I don't know. 
keep that alive, keep that in the back of your head. And then I can't believe we've never had New Day versus Alpha Academy before. So that will be fresh. And I'm glad they told us that. I do think we've had that with Academy as heels. No? Maybe, but they said they've never fought each other. Oh, okay. So I was like, oh, I Fair didn't enough. know that. Yeah, I didn't check, but that's a really good point. You rub me just right every week. I also love, uh, and you made this point, that he's still going after Gunther, but he has like a side quest, number one, with the tag team titles. And aside from that, they're not rushing it. We were so worried that they were going to change it on Raw immediately after he uh, you know, beat the record or that they were going to do it for Crown Jewel or you know, even Survivor Series. And, and Survivor Series would be fine if that's when they decide to change it. But it more and more feels like, like they're going to let Gunther like, create some space between himself and Honky Tonk Man. And they're not just paying it off with the title change immediately like they did with Bianca Belair uh, you know, earlier this year. So I love it. And Ooh. yes, uh, this was... Funnier than it had a right to be, more entertaining than it had a right to be. And it got an incredible reaction. Akira Tozawa, um, the little TV time that he is getting. And, and in the last like four weeks, it's been seeing big bad women and men backstage and immediately turning in the other direction, just like he always does, which is hysterical. But those little elements using him here, they are utilizing him. The problem, and I don't want to say it problem in a negative way, is he is so damn good in the ring that when he does get opportunities to wrestle people, you saw it in the Miz match, he gets over in like three minutes. And if they mm-hmm. ever gave him an opportunity like against Gunther, and you could call it a championship uh, contenders match if you want, or you know whatever the case might be. But if you let him go like six minutes with Gunther, Akira Tozawa would be just as over as Alpha Academy. <laughs> That's how good he is in the ring. That's uh, how funny he is. Yeah. So Yeah, and uh, to, to follow up, we have had uh, New Day versus Alpha Academy in a fatal four tag match before. We've had them in an eight-man tag match before, uh, but it doesn't look like okay. two on two has not happened. Interesting. I'm down for that match. It's going to be great. Good call. Uh, Ricochet fought Shinsuke Nakamura in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Nakamura promised to squash him like a bug in a pre-match promo. Ricochet attacked before the bell. They actually fought into gorilla position, though we did not see Triple H. And then onto the stage where I think Rick hit a standing shooting star press. I did look away for a moment here, but he did something really spectacular. Back from commercial, they were deep in the crowd with Ricochet hitting an insane shooting star press off the top of a vom onto Shinsuke and a bunch of security. The kids next to Ricochet were going absolutely crazy. They were as out of their mind as the Chargers fan woman was on Monday Night Football. They were just losing it. Uh, Nakamura then used nunchucks. He hit go to sleep again. Ricochet countered Kinshasa leaping off Shin's chest and then hit a springboard 450 only to get kicked off the top rope through a table that was set up ringside moments later. Nakamura followed with Kinshasa running through the broken table for the one, two, three. Excellent match, a paradigm, Chris, of why falls count anywhere is a far superior stipulation to last man standing. Ricochet was protected to a degree by the finish. Shinsuke got a win he needed after losing at Fastlane. This was a good opening match on Raw. It surely kept people watching the show. 3.75 stars, B+. Yep, exactly. This is why Falls Count Anywhere is fun, adds a lot of energy. This is a match that if it was a normal match in the ring, do not think it would have gotten much reaction. But because you can go to the crowd, do all these other things, you get invested more. And it was fun. It was good. Uh, Yes. I'm I'm going to counter that. I think they still would have gotten a great reaction, but clearly it was 
boosted by the fact that they were able to go in the crowd and do all those other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Becky Lynch was confronted backstage by Indy Hartwell and Candice LeRae, with Indy criticizing her for defending the NXT women's title against plenty of other challengers except the one who never lost it. I should note, uh, Indy was in a number one contendership match, I think, on NXT and lost, so she doesn't really have a claim to the title, but I digress. Uh, Lynch just simply agreed. She's like, okay, I'll fight you. I'll defend the title. She agreed to speak with Pierce and get the match made, which surprised Hartwell that it was that easy. Then Ripley walked through and they did a brief stare down, Becky and Rhea, as they seemingly do once every two or three months these days, teasing, of course, WrestleMania 40, one would presume. Pierce later made the match official for next week, pending Shawn Michaels' approval, and he did get that approval later in the show. Zaya Lee came up wondering what happened to her title shot that Becky promised. Lynch said it would come in due time. Then Jade Cargill stepped in with Becky telling her to get in line with a smile. We actually heard Jade speak for the first time as well. Not much to this, obviously, but it was good setup for the title, and it was nice to see Cargill again. Yeah, you know, we had theories. Um, are they going to keep her? Did they just announce it and keep, they'll keep her quiet and performance center for a long time or, or what? And nope, they are going straight forward with we are going to put her in front of every major women's star and keep the expectations as high as they can possibly be and make her feel mm-hmm. like a big deal. So that's what they're trying to do. I feel like it's working. It's making her it feel like a big deal. We'll see what happens when she gets in the ring. That booking is making her feel like a big deal and literally just seeing her. And, and no offense to a Tegan Knox, right? Who fan favorite, good, you know, it's great that she's getting opportunities now. But if you did the exact same booking that they're doing with Jade and you did it with Tegan, you'd just be like, oh, it's just a wrestler. But Jade has such a presence yeah. that she's so impressive yep. that when you see her, you're like, this person is a big deal. And then you couple that with the way WWE is treating her. They had her at Fastlane. NXT, SmackDown, and Raw. I guess they skipped the Raw after Fastlane, unless I'm forgetting. Um, but they had her on four shows in the last you know, nine days or so. Um, and every time you saw her, you go, wow, she's meeting with Shawn Michaels and Triple H, and Adam Pierce. She's going face-to-face with Charlotte Flair. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Becky Lynch. Clearly, Jade Cargill is a big deal. What I wanted to know coming out of this, Chris, do you feel like Ripley is not just the female equivalent, but the raw equivalent of Roman Reigns. I mean, besides like the name alliteration, Roman Reigns and Rhea Ripley, she's beefing with everyone, clearly stepping into a leadership role for a faction. She's affecting not just her division, but other titles and other divisions on the show. Even last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, when she dropped Acknowledge Me to Paul Heyman, I know that was tongue in cheek. It just feels like this is a purposeful parallel character to a degree. And to take it even a step further, and I tweeted this Tuesday before we taped the show, we had parallel WrestleMania 40 main event style stare downs. First, we had it on SmackDown with Reigns and Rhodes, and then we had it on Raw with Ripley and Lynch. Not just that both of them happened, they stood in the exact same spots and looked at each other in the exact same ways. There's no way that was a coincidence. And I just loved those teases both nights this week. And I love the way that, for me at least, Ripley is kind of feeling like the raw slash female version of Roman Reigns. In, in ways, yes. In other ways, no. Um, yes, she's feuding with everybody. Yes, she doesn't have many championship matches. But she is on TV every week, um, sometimes multiple shows per week. And, bear, and is 
not overexposed, but is very, very exposed, which is not the case with Roman. So it's it's similar, but she's not anywhere near that level yet, I would say. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Bobby Lashley confronted Carlito backstage at SmackDown, putting over his return at Fastlane, but taking a shot at how he used to be a jobber. So Carlito challenged him for his first match back, only for the Street Profits to attack him from behind. Uh, Pierce and Jason Jordan ran in to stop it. I really don't think this is grade worthy, but you like doing grades no matter what. So it's a provisional good. Uh, Lashley will beat Carlito next week. And my best guess is they find a way to turn this into an eight-man tag by the time Crown Jewel rolls around. I was going to say bad because I didn't care, but also I don't, I didn't really watch the Ruthless Aggression era. So they Mm -hmm. seem to be alluding to some past Bobby Lashley, Carlito stuff that I'm not super familiar with. So that just, that may be a me thing. I didn't recognize that either, but I will note, I said eight man. If Ray's going to fight Logan, then it would have to be just a six man. That would make the most sense. Carlito being in Ray's spot, I guess. Uh, Or I guess they could do Carlito, Santos, and both Legato del Fantasma guys, and they could do whatever you want to call them, Lashley and the Prophets, maybe adding someone as well. So there's opportunity to do six or eight, I guess, going forward. Uh, Zelina Vega fought Bailey. Uh, after that attack that I just mentioned between Lashley, Carlito, and the Prophets, Bailey interrupted Pierce trying to get his attention for an EO Sky title celebration. Zelina got pissed because LWO was in a crisis in the moment. Pierce lost his mind. He was too stressed. So he just made a match between them. Vega hit a bottom rope 619, which was kind of odd, plus a Meteora. EO distracted, giving Bailey an opening for a pump knee and the Rose Plant to win in three minutes. Damage Control attacked after the bell with... Yes, of course, Charlotte Flair running down, galloping like a horse because she was wearing platform heels for some reason, making a save. Why? (laughs) Yeah, it didn't make any sense. So look, don't get it twisted, okay? I'm pleased that Vega got a match and Bailey got a long overdue win. But barely three minutes, that's it. All purely to set up another avenue for Flair to get around the title before she challenges for it. Sorry, folks. I don't like that. I don't like that. And yeah, bad. I thought them arguing over Carlito's still down body after the commercial break was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, uh, the match was nothing like you said. Charlotte running down in that nice outfit in heels was just weird. Like, if you want to say like, oh, she just happened to be backstage dressed like that and figured she had to come out and save it. That's why it happened. Like, Okay. Take your heels off on the just, ramp. Pull them off and run down. It just it just looked weird. You don't need to come up with that backstory. Just if she's going to come down and make the save, make it look like a good save. It didn't look like a good save. So right. uh, I give it a, a bad as well. Uh, Chelsea Green and Piper Niven met Aldis backstage saying, uh, with Chelsea saying, that she heard he's a man who can get things done. So she pitched uh, redesigned titles when Charlotte walked in and Aldis said he had a previously scheduled meeting. Obviously, Chelsea thought, that he made a terrible first impression, very smart to get her in front of the new manager, you know, right on the first show. He told Flair that he thought she would have won the title match at Fastlane had it not been for interference. And then I shit you not, Chris, he said this, quote, SmackDown is on my watch now. Things are going to change. So Charlotte, you will go one-on-one with EO for the WWE Women's Championship next week. As Charlotte went to leave, Jade and Triple H slid into the picture. Charlotte went face-to-face with Jade with a respectful but heated brief moment. Aldis's decision was the exact opposite of changing SmackDown. 
not giving Charlotte a match and telling her too bad, get in the back of the line, earn another title shot. That would have been a change. You know what I'm saying? I mean, her ass got pinned in that match. You know, Charlotte sees gold and she has to follow it. She, she's like, where's the championship? Oh, it's out there. Let me go out there. Even though she has nothing to do with us. We don't want Charlotte around. Anyway, it was smart for Chelsea to immediately interact with the new authority figure pushing Sky Flair on SmackDown. At least gave me hope they won't change the title. And obviously the Cargill confrontation hit. The aura they're building around Jade is outstanding, as we mentioned earlier. This was obviously good. The best booking would probably be Charlotte Jade at WrestleMania without a title on the line as the third women's match. What do you think about that? What do you think about this? I agree, but they will definitely have a title. <laughs> I know. When that happens. I know. Uh, but I, I don't think Charlotte's winning it next week or this week. Um, I don't think you just throw that match on SmackDown the next week to make a change like that. So we'll see. You never know, Charlotte. But uh, overall, I thought this was uh, good. You think interference and then rematch at Crown Jewel and then maybe they actually change it there? Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. It's going to it's gonna be straight up depressing to see EO lose the title to Charlotte. It just is. I know we're being like pessimistic and glass, glass half empty here, but I just, I want EO to have a successful title reign and a long title reign and like Charlotte immediately injecting herself into it. You just, you get that feeling in your gut. And look, WWE, maybe they're going to counter book and swerve us. Like they're giving us this expectation. Oh my God, Charlotte's in the picture. Obviously she's going to win. And then she doesn't. That would be an incredible swerve. But I just don't think they're going to do that. But we'll see. Maybe we can be proven wrong. That would be awesome. Uh, Chelsea and Piper interrupted Tegan Knox speaking with Caden Carter and Katana Chance with Nikki Cross sitting silently all disturbed by herself. Tegan didn't take their shit talking and threatened to fight Chelsea like Natalia was going to fight Piper later in the show. Decent little segment. We had Natalia against Niven. Both of them had new gear, most notably Piper, who I will say kind of looked like one of the Viking Raiders. The skirt was very similar to the way that they wear their skirts. Um, Natty totally yeah. botched, and I mean totally botched. A falling dropkick came nowhere close to her. She got pushed back into green on the ring apron with Piper nailing her uh, with a running crossbody for the win in seven minutes, though half of it was during commercial break. Natty refused to take their shit after the bell, so Knox ran in to even it up. I feel like I'm being put in a really tight spot here because technically we got a seven minute match with build for the women's tag team division. I harp on them not doing either of those things consistently all the time. So that should be a default good. And yet, Chris, critically, the majority of this segment, the match, it was bad. The backstage segment was the best part of the entire thing, I thought. It was nice to hear a small pop for Tegan making the save. It was clear. It's been clear the last two weeks. They were going to team her with Natty, so that's clearly happening here. But I am going to go with bad, but with a caveat of I'm happy they're finally doing something, and I'm happy that Tegan was able to make the save the way she did. Yeah, I thought this was good because we got Piper Niven matched. We got some tag team stuff going on. It wasn't perfect. There was some stuff that was not great, but um, we got a lot of Chelsea and Piper on this show for the first time in a while, so that mm -hmm. was good to see. And... Just for that low bar, I'm giving it a good. Okay. Uh, it is worth noting here before we move on. There were 17, yes, 17, one seven, women on Raw in the first two hours of the show. And by the time it ended, you throw in Maxine Dupree from that segment, 18. That felt like a record to me. Not just the main eventers, by the way, but the entire mid card and low card were on Raw. 
Still only about 13 minutes of wrestling in two matches, but it seemed like a concerted effort to get people on screen and set things up for the future. You have at least three real women's tag teams on Raw, if you include Tegan and Natty, which they are building. You have at least three plus the champions, and you have, I believe, at least one, but if not two, on SmackDown. Yet, they're simultaneously, at least in the case of Tegan and Natty, doing the singles thing. Tegan said her matches, Natty said her matches. This is what I've talked about for a long time. So while I gave that segment a bad, I'm giving like almost a extra credit good to Triple H and WWE Creative for featuring so many women on Raw. It almost felt like an episode of NXT a little bit because that's what Sean does all the time. I loved it. We don't get that enough. I'm not saying that 17 need to be on every week, but if you're giving me a regular amount of, you know, eight to 12 women on, on Raw, it's a three hour show. You're only talking about like four per hour if you're talking about that. That is what it should be. That is much closer. It's not gonna be equal to the men, but it's much closer to feeling like the women are just as much a part of the show as the men. That was hugely notable. And you and I coming out of WrestleMania, right? We we talked at length about the biggest issue with Triple H's creative has been a lack of focus on the women. And we thought, you know, coming out of WrestleMania and then later we said coming out of SummerSlam, he had an opportunity to change that tune once storylines got wrapped up and completed and they were able to move forward. I think Becky Lynch has a lot to do with it but I do think Triple H has a lot to do with it as well. And I did want to point that out specifically for Raw on a Monday night. Yeah, I would agree with all of that and don't really have much to add otherwise. It was nice. Okay. Uh, Brawling Brutes fought pretty deadly. The heels got a dramatic introduction for Elton Prince's recovery with him finally getting out of the wheelchair. There's also now a full enormous disco ball, like a real one, not AR, that hangs above the ring for their entrance. The faces didn't Ted Beats. The heels did a fun spot showing off Prince's newly- a renewed strength. Uh, Butch took out Kit Wilson with a shining wizard, but got dumped on the ring apron. Prince did an injury gimmick as a distraction for Ridge Holland. He ate a cheap shot from Wilson and then the heels won via roll-up. They immediately ran to the ramp and celebrated with the wheelchair. On one hand, it sucks that the Brutes had some momentum coming out of NXT extinguished by this, but really Deadly has such a high ceiling in the division. They needed to not only pick up a win, but do it in their classic fashion to remind the audience about the gimmick and the way they win matches. And far better for Holland to take the fall than Butch. So this was good, and I was glad to see them back. This was great. This was hilarious. This this was uh, everything you'd want with Pretty Deadly coming back. Uh, the wheelchair celebration was hilarious. You know, leaning into the injury spot at the end. They're really funny, man. Like, and they're just going all in uh, the, the song, the entrance, everything is getting more and more over the top. And I'm, I'm totally buying into it. I, I I don't know what crowd reaction will be week to week, but I just find them incredibly entertaining. And this was a very fun uh, return match. So definitely good. Now, while that is the last uh, item that we're grading for the good, the bad, and the ugly, just two quick things to mention. Dragon Lee got a brief vignette highlighting some of his action, mostly in NXT during SmackDown. And then Indu Shur and Jinder Mahal spoke with Pierce backstage on Raw. So they're back. And I guess factoring into the tag team picture again. So that really wraps up everything that happened this week across SmackDown and Raw. Now, we're not going to do it on today's episode, but next week or coming soon, I want to do a six-month-out look 
at the WrestleMania 40 card and the way it's shaping up. Clearly, this week, like between Roman Reigns and Cody Rhodes, Rhea Ripley and Becky Lynch, Jay Uso and Jimmy Uso, those three matches were all teased heavily this week, but there were some others that are worth discussing. And again, we'll do that either next week or the week after that at some point before we give you the WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. With that said, let's get to the final segment on today's show. It is the last word. So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. What? We gon' have a speed poppin' in a second. That's why we always say the best cut last to make you scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. Now this one came in, Chris, and it's right in our respective wheelhouses. Uh, Jordan Blaney at jblaney21. He's been trying to get a last word question in for a while. He said, I figured this was the perfect week for it. We are around halfway through the college football season. What would your four playoff teams be right now? And I'm going to let you go ahead and answer that first. Well, the first is the team I just went and saw in person, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, team I saw in person the week before, Oklahoma. Interesting. Then Florida State and Georgia. That's just right now. What Michigan, about? Let's I don't pre- have my top four because they haven't played anybody yet. I just kind of teams who have played people so far. So if I have to pick four right now, those are my four. So those are your four best teams now. What if I asked you to project who you think the four playoff teams will be? To project, I think Michigan does get in. I think they're probably going to be undefeated. Mm-hmm. Um, Georgia, Florida State, and to, Pac-12 is tough. Like I don't know if Washington or Oregon will get in because they may all beat each other up too much. If Ohio State squeezes in potentially as as a number four again, or if, uh, but I'll I'll stick with Washington. So basically, taking out who did I take out? Uh, Florida State, no Oklahoma. I'm sorry, I'm going to have Oklahoma. I'll I'll take the Pac-12 out. So projecting Oklahoma, uh, Georgia, Michigan, Florida State. Okay, so my four. As of today, what I believe the four best teams in college football are, I mean, it's it's weird because like Georgia hasn't played anybody and they're not going to play anybody. So I'm going to keep them there because they're the two time reigning champions. And I I trust that they are one of the four best teams, but I don't necessarily. What do you mean they're they're not good? What do you mean they're not going to play anybody? They're playing the vaunted five and two Florida Gators. They are. And and the Gators are in control of their destiny and the SEC potentially uh, if they can win that game. They only have one loss and they'd have the head to head over Georgia if they do win. But uh, as as much as I may be a Gators fan, I am not uh, anticipating that. But they don't have anyone really on their schedule this entire year. It's like the easiest schedule ever. And it happens to be for the number one team and two time reigning champion. So I'll I'll say they're one of the four best teams right now, but I don't actually believe that they're going to get in the playoff because they're not going to play anyone. They're going to go undefeated. But I don't think they're one of the four best teams in the country. Uh, But right now, so Georgia, uh, Michigan. Uh, Washington, undoubtedly, and Oklahoma. I believe those are the four best teams today. When it comes to projecting the playoff, I have Georgia because, again, it has no impediments to get there. Michigan, I do think they get through the Big Ten undefeated. But I got to tell you, Chris, I really like Penn State. And I kind of feel like Ohio State's fraudulent. And I'm wondering if that Michigan-Penn State game gets real freaking interesting and shakes up all of our expectations for the Big Ten championship game and everything going forward. I do believe that a Pac-12 team gets in there. Probably the winner of the league title game, whether that's Washington 
or Oregon. I'm actually going to say Oregon right now. I like what they do defensively a little bit better on a neutral field. I think they win. And even though it would be 1-1, they'd have the most recent win. And I think they would get in as the league champion. And then similar to that, I actually am going to say Texas gets the fourth spot, winning the Big 12 championship game over Oklahoma the exact same way that we just discussed. That'll be a little bit more difficult. It'll be two neutral site games, one win, one loss for each side. But I don't know. I just feel like Oklahoma, there's, there's going to be a let up at some point. There usually is a let up with Oklahoma at some point. And so those are my four. Um, any disagreements or thoughts with what I said? Uh, most of that I don't believe in Penn State as much as you do. I think Michigan will wipe the floor with Interesting. Penn State and Ohio State. Uh, I don't think Penn State has a juice offensively. We'll see Penn State, Ohio State this week for sure. And I don't think, as Lou Holtz said, Ohio State is tough enough. Oh, no, they're fraudulent. Seen. Yeah, they're, they're nothing. Right? And so honestly, I, I kind of feel that way. I mean, again, I, yes, I am a Florida fan, but I, I feel that way about Florida State. I just don't think they're that good. I just think they happen to be the best team in a bad conference right now. Um, well, I, I just I'd love right, to see North Carolina kick the I, shit I, out of them. They don't they're not going to have any challenging games really the rest of the year. They don't play North Carolina in the right. regular season. So basically, I think I would be surprised if they lose a regular season game, in which case they go into the conference championship game playing potentially a team uh, that's undefeated or not. And if they could lose and get in, they could win right. and get in. I think that's it's, it's partly because of who's left on the schedule. It's going to be really interested if that's an undefeated ACC championship game. Because, I mean, look, UNC does have Duke, but yeah. they have them at home. Then they have Clemson on the road, but they are better than Clemson, at least most would say that, I think. But it, at least they're equal. If if both teams are able to go undefeated and meet in that championship game, the winner gets in. And, I mean, we can see North Carolina playing for the playoff. I think they're better than Florida State, straight up. We'll see, maybe, if they play each other. Otherwise, they don't. Yeah, otherwise, they don't. But, I mean, you can give That's an opinion on which point. one you think is better. You can still give an opinion. Yeah. Do you have one? <laughs> I, I think Florida State's better. Okay, fair enough. Just curious. All right, we'll see. Maybe it happens, and if so, we'll be able to go head-to-head and discuss that the first week of December, which is when that uh, usually goes down. But, folks, look, that was the last word for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate all of you, as always, for listening to the show. Please don't forget that this podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, fun stuff all week long. But don't just follow us. Please retweet, uh, like, share, comment, reply, DM, it's an open communication forum. That is why we have it again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get major news posts every single week, usually on Friday, along with bonus instant reaction audio for Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown. Again, all of it. Buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thanks once again to Vintage Chris Vanini for joining me. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>